0: It's the last three verses of this chapter of this book that I want to draw your attention to tonight, verses 17, 18, and 19. I'm conscious we're coming to a harvest Thanksgiving service, and yet this verse deals with there being no harvest at all. And what does the prophet say in times like this? He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord my God. So the theme that I want to look at tonight is to pull all that together together and look at the theme of farms, failure, and faith. Farms, failure, and faith. And we'll take these verses as our text this evening. With our Bibles open there, let's seek the Lord in a further word of prayer. Our gracious God and our eternal Father, we thank Thee tonight for the privilege of gathering in Thy house. We bless Thee for the health and strength that we have. or We rejoice also in the traveling mercies that... Find us here this evening. We thank Thee for all the ordering of Providence throughout today that enabled us to come here to worship Thy great name. We thank Thee, Lord, for the liberty in our province, the civil and religious liberty to gather here. We thank Thee for Thy precious word. We thank, Lord, of men like Tyndale who gave their life that we would have Thy word in our own language. We thank Thee, Lord, for that life that was given in that pursuit. And Lord, we thank thee for the singing tonight. We thank thee for the special items of praise. Lord, bless all that to our hearts. And as we turn now to thy word, we pray for thy blessing. Lord, speak to us, we pray. I know these are challenging times in which we live. And Lord, thou dost have a word in season for us. Help us to be like the prophet here. In the midst of all the difficulties that he faced, he looked to thee. Rejoiced in thee and rested upon thee, Lord, and let that be our experience tonight and in the days to come. Lord, teach us from these verses. Teach us what it is to trust in our God and Savior. So, Lord, answer prayer for us and bless us now. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit. Give help in the preaching and in the hearing of thy word. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We don't know very much about the man who wrote the words of our text this evening, the Bible says nothing about his family, nothing about his background, nothing about the type of city or town where he lived. But from the few things that we do know about him, we can conclude that he was a man of God who lived in very troubled times. Habakkuk was a Jew, and he was very disturbed at the sin of his people and very disturbed at the divine judgments that were going to fall upon them because of that sin. For years, the Israelites had rebelled against God. They cared nothing for his law, cared nothing for his word. They had no time for his ways, no time for God's worship. And when God raised up prophets to call them from that path of sin, they either ignored those prophets or they imprisoned them. The people of Habakkuk's day had no real interest in the Lord. And as a result of that ongoing rebellion against him, they had been brought to the age of destruction. According to Habakkuk chapter 1, God was going to raise up the Chaldeans and use them against his own people. That prospect baffled or bewildered this man of God. He couldn't understand why God would permit a heathen army like the Chaldeans to prevail over his people. After all, the Chaldeans were more sinful than the Israelites. And therefore, it didn't seem right to this man that the Israelites would be defeated by them. It didn't make sense to Habakkuk. And so he took the matter to God in prayer. And he reasoned with the Lord. In due course, God answered his servant and he explained to him that although he was going to use the Chaldeans as a means of judgment, the time would come when he would deal with them as they deserved. Desolation would come to the Lord's people for a time. Then they would be raised out of their ruins, but utter desolation would come upon the Chaldeans And they would be destroyed eventually and forever. So in a sense, what God was doing there was revealing to Habakkuk the secret of his ways. He was permitting this man to see behind the scenes and come to grips with the fact that God who knows all things was also in control of all things. But Habakkuk didn't leave it there. He came to God in prayer for the second time. And this time he prayed that God would revive his work and in wrath remember mercy. That brings me into Habakkuk chapter 3. If you notice the second verse of this chapter, he says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath remember mercy. And if you want to study on prayer, In a study on prayer for revival, passionate prayer for revival, we could do no better than come to these verses. Habakkuk's praying reverently. He's praying humbly. He's praying earnestly. He's presenting his case with powerful arguments to God that God would remember his people and deliver them once more. Then he finishes his prayer with a glorious note of humble submission. And joy in the Lord. His prayer in many ways is very simple. Habakkuk recalls various events from the past. Events which revealed God's mercy to his people. God had led them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. He, he recalls that mercy of God. He had dried up their waters Of the seas and the rivers for them. He had delivered them time and time again. Even going so far as causing the sun and the moon to stand still for them. God had not forsaken his people. Rather he had fought for them and consumed their enemies and brought them safely through. And Habakkuk gathers up all those experiences. And he waits on God. That God would revive his people once more. In the full knowledge that God never changes. I'm tempted just to pause there and make application to our own circumstances in our day and generation. Believer, do we not have reason to do the same? Gather up the past experiences we have known of God's mercy and God's help and cry to him again in this land. Wilt thou not revive us again? Is that not what we need to look back to see how God moved in a previous time, repent of our present sin, and cry for God to work once more. Now in verse 16 of this chapter, Habakkuk confesses something. He confesses that the pending doom and judgment that was coming to Israel filled him with fear and dread. He says in verse 16 that his belly trembled. That phrase Regarding his belly is just another way of speaking of his inner being. That's how the Hebrews talked about their inner emotions. We talk about our heart. They talked about their belly. He talks about his belly trembling, his lips quivering at the very idea of judgment. And as he thought on the judgment that God was going to bring, he was sick and he he was very troubled in his soul. He was in the depths of despair. But as he prays, His heart is changed and he finishes his prayer by submitting himself to God and resolving to rejoice in God, whatever the outcome might be. As he comes to that point of humble submission, Habakkuk mentions things that would be very familiar to farmers, very familiar to the people in those rural communities those who work the land. Look what he says in verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. And I put it to you tonight. Those are remarkable words. They are statements of faith in the midst of dreadful failure. They are statements of delight in the midst of dreadful despair. Statements of strength in the midst of horrible, life-changing losses resting upon God when your whole world collapses around you. Here's a man facing certain bankruptcy, but he's still rejoicing in the Lord. And I wonder tonight, can we all say that? Is this testimony of faith, is that true of all of us? So that's my theme tonight. What if the farm fails? Do you have faith in Christ? So you have the farm, you have failure, but you have faith. Three things here. First of all, the verse identifies a great calamity. A great calamity. It's impossible, I think, to read verse 17 and not be struck by the overwhelming sense of loss that it conveys. Line after line here describes failure and emptiness and disaster. It's not just that one aspect of the farm has gone down, but every aspect of it. The figs have have failed. The grapes haven't grown. The crop in the field hasn't materialized. The sheep are gone. There are no cattle in the stalls. The whole Business of this farmer is facing bankruptcy. However, we look at verse 17, it presents a picture of grave calamity. Put yourself in this man's shoes. The very thing that every farmer dreads most. The failure of his crops. The death of his animals. The profits of the farm wiped out because of weather or disease or some other circumstance. It's the stuff of nightmares for the farmer here. Everything he's ever worked for. Suddenly loss. Of course, it doesn't only happen to farmers. It can happen in every walk of life. Things that we have spent so much time and so much energy on can go from us. Businesses. Can go under. Investments can feel. Redundancy can come. Things can happen that leave us facing huge losses in life. And it's often viewed to be a calamity. An absolute calamity. But I think this verse goes even deeper than that. Because surely there's a message here about the uncertainty of life. Farmers know. Farmers know that there will be some losses and some setbacks on the farm. I have no farming background whatsoever in my family history, none whatsoever. But since coming to Oma, I have learned a little about farming. And I think the men in Oma are very patient because I ask probably the most stupidest of questions from a city fella to farmers. And they are very patient and they answer my questions very graciously. And they will tell me at lambing season that lambs die. And I would say, well, that's a terrible thing. It's a terrible loss for you. How do you deal with that? Well, we factor that in. We know that's the way it's going to be. Every year we're going to lose some. Some days, some weather, some years the weather is not good. We're going to lose certain things on the farm. And they factor that into their way of farming, their way of life. There will always be an element of uncertainty. Who can tell when prices will fall? Who can tell when the harvest might fail? Who can tell when the cow will lose her calf or the lambs will die at birth? Who can tell when things will go wrong on the farm? It's uncertain. There's an element of uncertainty in the farmer's life. But life is like that, isn't it? Not one of us knows what a day will bring forth. Our carefully laid plans can be changed in an instant. We can prepare for tomorrow, but we don't even know if we're going to see tomorrow. That was the truth that James dealt with in James chapter 4. He was conscious that some were planning ahead. They had their lives all mapped out. They were planning to go to a city. They would stay there for a year or so. They would buy and sell. They would make a little profit and then employ that profit back into their business. They would do well. They would move on to another city. And they would go through all that process again. And there was no thought given to the uncertainty of life. So James challenges that. He says in verse 13 of chapter 4, Go to now ye that say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get game. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. See what James is saying. You don't know what's going to be on tomorrow. You don't know about tomorrow. In Luke chapter 12, the Lord Jesus Christ told of a farmer who planned to pull down his barns and build greater. He thought he had many years ahead of him. He thought he could take his ease and eat and drink and be merry for he had much goods laid up for a long time in his estimation. But that night the farmer died suddenly. Life is uncertain. Sickness can come. Poverty can come. Trials can come. Great losses can come. Things can go smoothly for a time. And suddenly calamity comes. Death can come. If Habakkuk 3.17 teaches us anything, it is surely we must not boast of tomorrow. The uncertainty of life. There's also another thought here in this great calamity. There's the thought of the inability of man the inability of man. No no careful farmer sits back and watches his farm go to wreck and ruin. If he's a careful, conscientious man at all, he will apply himself. He will take every precaution he can. He will use the best methods. he make the best use of his ground. He will do everything he can to make his farm profitable. But there are times, even with all of that effort, He suffers crop and animal failure. It's not that he's a bad farmer. It's just that certain things are out of his control and there's nothing he can do about it. You see, while man is the apex of God's creation, he is not God. We have limitations. In fact, we are more frail and fragile and dependent upon God than we ever care to realize. Pride makes man think he is capable of doing whatever he wants. He likes to think he's in control. He likes to think he can lay his plans and he can fulfill his plans and he can live his life really without God. But the truth is, man is poor and needy. We can't make the sun to shine. We can't make the rain to fall. We can't make the crops to grow. We can't make the animals to thrive. It's God who gives the increase. That's why harvest Thanksgiving services are good, because it gives us time and opportunity just to pause and think about that. Yes, the farmer sows the seed, he takes care of the crop as best he can. But with all his best efforts, unless God causes that crop to grow, it's not going to grow. Psalm 104 verse 14 confirms that. It tells us, he causeth the grass to grow for the cattle. Isaiah 55 and verse 10, For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Man can't do that. But God can. And there are times when the harvest feels, as it is here in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17, and it, it exposes the awful inability of man. We are utterly dependent upon God. I learned too about the insecurity for the future here. The insecurity for the future. You think of the devastating impact. Of the situation in verse 17. The fig tree shall not blossom. The fruit shall not be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. The field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. There shall be no herd in the stalls. Dreadful failure of crops and animals. A complete breakdown of the normal cycle of farm life. Many years ago I had an opportunity to be in Spain visiting our missionaries and you travel from Madrid down to where Lyle Boyd and his wife ministered for many years and there are fields just full of olive trees. That's how people live. They live depending on the olive harvest. Really have no other source of income. Small farmers just depending on the olive harvest. If that harvest was to feel they have nothing else to rely on here not only does the olive feel but the vines are feeling the fig trees are feeling the animals are feeling everything is feeling and what becomes of a people who are living from one season to the next desperately depending on a good harvest what happens to those people when the harvest fails the future is very bleak to say the least There's nothing bright, there's nothing hopeful about their circumstances. When what they're depending upon doesn't materialize, then they are in a hopeless situation for the future. I see a parallel in the lives of men and women tonight. All over this country, all over this nation, all over this world, there are people who have put so much store on earthly things. But what if it crashes around them? There are many who are losing their jobs right now in our country. And it's set to get worse in the next few months. There are commentators who are talking about another recession. Businesses are failing. People's hopes are being threatened. Their entire livelihoods could be wiped out. Unless the circumstances with the pandemic change and change reasonably quickly. But if that's all they have. If that's where all their hope is resting. What of their future? Material things don't last. They are short-lived and we leave them all behind us eventually. Eventually. Yet for so many people, it's all they have in life. This is a verse of great calamity. It's full of loss. It's full of disappointment. It's full of failure. It's full of emptiness. It shows in very vivid language the fickle nature of life. And men and women, that's something we ought to underscore in our minds. We may not be facing hard times personally right now. But hard times can come. Maybe you are facing hard times right now. This this was devastating in Habakkuk's day. He felt the devastation of it. Tell me, how do you face such a thing as this? How would you respond? If your world collapses around you, what would you do if your world fell apart? We faced a grave calamity like this? Well, that leads me to my second observation here. Not only is there a great calamity, there is a great contentment. A great contentment. Verse 17 is marked with catastrophe. Whereas verse 18 is a verse marked with calmness. In verse 17, the prophet speaks of terrible trouble. In verse 18, he speaks of personal peace. But the language, although the fig tree shall not blossom. And on he goes down, verse 17, with all of its doom and despair and devastation. Verse 18 opens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Those are words of contentment. They don't misunderstand me here. It doesn't mean this man of God didn't feel the losses of verse 17. It doesn't mean he wasn't saddened by what was happening or that he was indifferent to all that came to pass. Not at all. He was a man. He would have felt these things. He would have felt them very keenly in his soul, in his heart. He would have felt the disappointment and the devastation and the despair of it all. But this man of God, Habakkuk, had an inner peace. He had an inner joy. He had an inner contentment in the midst of the calamities of life. He had something, or to rephrase that better, he had someone that sustained him. He possessed something that could never be taken away from him. Habakkuk, his life was not so wrapped up in things that when those things failed, he went to pieces. Rather his life was fixed on God. And when all around him gave way, he could still rejoice in the Lord his God. Robert Aste, a Puritan preacher, said the prophet sees all things to be discouraging below, but he turns his eyes up to heaven, And sees a certainty and stability there. And therefore he rejoices in the Lord. And joys in the God of his salvation. To put that very simply. This man found his greatest joy and contentment. In Jesus Christ his Savior. I don't doubt if Habakkuk had known the hymn. He would have said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Or he might have sung the words, in land or store, I may be poor. My place unknown, my name obscure. Of this I have the witness sure. Oh, bless the Lord. Jesus that's what sets the Christian apart it's not that he is a trouble free life it's not that he doesn't face calamities it's not that he never has a problem of course the Christian man the Christian woman the Christian young person has problems but he has Christ as his saviour And therefore he can face life with a glorious sense of contentment. One old preacher said there is enough in Christ Jesus alone for the soul's full rejoicing and triumphing in all cases and conditions. The person who has Christ as his Savior can say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has grounds for full contentment. If you think through this and look at this chapter, you'll notice that Christ is a personal Savior. Habakkuk puts it that way. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. See that. He says, my salvation, my strength. Christ belonged to him and he belonged to Christ. This is not a, a vague statement of general Christianity. Habakkuk had a personal, living, vital, unbreakable relationship with Christ. He was in an unbreakable union with the Savior. Christ was his and he was Christ's. That's what Paul can say in Galatians 2 verse 20. One of the most remarkable verses in all of Paul's writings in the New Testament. This is what Paul says. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, which I now live here on earth, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul saying there? He's saying, I know Christ personally. I am one with Christ personally. My friend, that's what salvation means. It's not just a name. It's not just a concept. It's not just an idea. Salvation, true Christianity, is a living relationship with Christ. Christ dwells in me and I dwell in Christ. And the life that I live is the life of Christ in me. Being lived as I live here on earth. Christ was his personal Savior. Christ was his unchangeable Savior. The whole context of these words draws a contrast between the failures of the world and the faithfulness of the Lord. Things around us may collapse. Our world may be turned upside down by unforeseen events. It may be a financial crash the like of which we have never seen before. It may be a health crisis that you have never encountered in your life personally before. We live in a changing world. But in the midst of a changing world Christ remains unchanged and unchangeable. Hebrews 13 tells me he is the same yesterday, today and forever. Riches will come and go. Health will come and go. Position will come and go. The markets will come and go. Good days and bad days will come and go. There's change, change all around us. But not so with Jesus Christ. He is a faithful saviour. Faithful to his promises, faithful to his people, faithful to his purposes in our lives. There's not a Savior like him. He never fails. I learned too that Habakkuk rejoiced and was content in the fact that Christ was a sufficient and satisfying Savior. The names of the Lord are very important in this verse. Verse 18, verse 19. He is the Lord, he tells us. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It's in small capital letters. Then he says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Then he pulls those two titles together and says in verse 19, The Lord God is my strength. The Lord Jehovah. God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And those titles of the Lord here, point us to his self-sufficiency the fact he is a self existent God what does that mean it means that God is not dependent on us we are dependent on him it means that God is sufficient he's not looking to us for his sufficiency we look to him for our sufficiency And what Habakkuk is dwelling on here, the thought that thrills his heart, is that Christ is sufficient for him. And, believer, Christ is sufficient for us, He is sufficient for our spiritual needs. I can say this without fear of contradiction tonight, but what do we need more than anything else in this world? We need our sins forgiven more than anything else. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be saved from the penalty and power and practice and presence of our sin. We need to be brought into a living relationship with God. We need to be ready for eternity. We, that's, that's the most important thing we have. The most important need we have is to be saved by God's grace. And Christ alone is sufficient for that. Why? Why? Because Christ alone has kept the law of God and rendered a perfect obedience to God on behalf of sinners like us. And Christ alone has done that. And because Christ alone has done that, he has earned the right to die for his people. And he has gone to the cross and he has died as our substitute. He has no sin of his own but he took our sins and our sorrows and he made them his own and he carried that burden to Calvary and he suffered and died alone. He has made for sinners like us a full atonement. He has provided a full covering for the sins of men and women just like us. He is a full Savior and through him we can have a full and free and final salvation. Only Christ can do that. He is sufficient for our spiritual needs. He's also sufficient for our physical needs. He doesn't promise us health and wealth. But he promises to care for his people in all the turbulent ways of life. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is. He is sufficient to save us. He is sufficient to satisfy us, and that's why the Christian can be content. If you turn over in your Bible in the Old Testament to the book of Job, Job was a very wealthy farmer, the wealthiest man of his day, the greatest man in the East, in the area where he lived. But Job came into a time of great trial, unimaginable suffering unprecedented trouble Job 1 verse 13 we're told there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house and there came a messenger on to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away yea they have slain the servants with the age of the sword and I only am escaped alone to tell thee while he was yet speaking there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the age of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking there came also another and said thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house and behold there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. We can't imagine. We can't begin to imagine what Job faced in one day. The oxen have been taken, the servants slain by the sword, the camels taken, the servants slain by the sword, and then to add an unbearable burden to this man, his sons are killed. His daughters are taken in a terrible tragedy at their home. We can't begin to calculate the depth of sorrow that Job faced. Then look at chapter 2, in verse 3. It gets worse. The Lord says to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man? one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life so Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot onto his crown and from verse 8 on through the rest of this book we find this man of God who feared God and eschewed evil you find him sitting desolate his body breaking out with terrible boils he takes some piece of crockery to try and Scratch them to give him some ease from the sole of the foot to the crown of his head. His health has broken down. His wife tells him to curse God and die in verse 9. The man, I'm sure, felt he could take no more. Everything, everything that was precious to him had been taken away. what does Job say in Job 19, verse 25? I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Though he slay me, I will trust him, he says. Why is a man who has gone through so much in his life... And suffered so terribly. How How is he able to say this? I know that my Redeemer liveth. And I shall see him with mine eyes. Because he is Christ as his Savior. The unsaved man doesn't have that. That's the difference. Where will he go? When his world collapses around him. Where does he go when his world falls apart? He has nowhere to go. The Christian has his Christ. A great calamity, a great contentment. It is lastly here a great confidence. Look carefully at the passage again from verse 16. He says, When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labour of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds' feet. He says, I will rejoice. I will joy. And the Lord will make my feet like hinds' feet. He talks in verse 16 about resting. I might rest in the day of trouble. In verse 18, he talks about rejoicing. In verse 19, he talks about relying upon the Lord. He will make me to walk upon mine high places. I was very struck with the words of John Calvin on this. John Calvin said, I take this to mean that God would make his faithful people to advance boldly and without fear along high places. It certainly has the thought of progress. It certainly has the thought of going upward and forward and onward with God, sure footed and steadfast in the world. No, in, no denying that's what we need. That's what we need in days like this. How can the Christian walk with God in a world of sin, in a world of despair, a world of uncertainty, a world of confusion, a world of deception? A world when you don't know who to believe anymore, when the reports on the news are so conflicting, and no one even knows what to believe, even in regard to the pandemic. How can we live for God in times like that? Through the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference. We find grace and power and strength to live for Christ through the gospel of Christ. Christ is the answer. Christ doesn't just provide an entrance into heaven for his people. He provides all we need for the journey to heaven. So we can trust him. We can have confidence in Christ. We can depend on him. Tell me tonight, is that your testimony? Is that how it is with your soul? Is Christ everything to you? Or is Christ anything to you? Or is Christ nothing to you? The Christian can be of good cheer. Because in Christ we have everything we need. farm, the failure, but the faith? Tell me, what are you trusting in tonight? Are you resting in the Lord? I trust you are. I trust you are. And then all these uncertainties that we face, we can lift our eyes heavenward and say, I, I'm trusting in Christ. I know all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And are they called according to his purpose. I'm resting there. That's what drives away the fear. That's what drives away the anxiety. That's what enables us to face every day. We know Christ. It enables us to face the judgment. We know Christ. It enables us to face death and eternity. Because we know Christ. But maybe you're in the meeting tonight and you don't know him. You're not saved. And if death were to come for you tonight. You're lost. You're lost forever. So may you come to Christ and trust Him as your Savior. May the Lord bless His word to our hearts tonight. For Jesus' sake, amen.